0: Well, you can turn in your Bible to Mark chapter seven. We've finally concluded chapter ten, and we're entering now what might be the third portion of Mark. If you'd have divided in thirds, this would be the last portion, the part three, as they now begin to enter Jerusalem. And I wonder uh, what you think about Jesus. Wonder what you think about Jesus. Everyone comes with their ideas of Jesus, with their uh, presuppositions about what kind of Savior he is, I think that most people, and I believe everyone here, would respect Jesus to some degree, admire him even, and honor him in some way that you desire to perhaps even live according to the ways he taught, the ethics he promoted. Most people do. Uh, Atheists often respect Jesus. Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or agnostics all have some sort of respect for Jesus. But not all understand Jesus and those groups all disagree about Jesus and not all of us come to the biblical understanding of Jesus. I wonder if you have a true, full, robust understanding of who Jesus is. You might wonder what do Jewish people think about Jesus? Because as we're coming to this portion of Scripture, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. You would know according to, if you were a Jew of that time, that you had studied your Old Testament, you had known the promises, you had understood there's a coming king, there's one coming who's a Messiah, there's one person upon which you're putting all your hope, And here, we're going to read the account of his entry into the capital city, and you might expect that the Jews would receive him, and we're going to see there is some sort of excitement there. Do the Jews embrace him as their Messiah? If you were to ask Jews today, although there are a small segment of Jewish people who call themselves messianic Jews, they do see Jesus as their Messiah. The vast majority of Jewish people do not claim that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. They don't believe that. In fact, one author claimed that the one thing Jews have in common, amidst all their different traditions and all their different even theological beliefs, the one thing modern Jews have in common is that they reject the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. They're united upon that claim. A rabbi who is living today, Shraga Simmons, notes that there are at least two reasons that they do not receive Jesus as their Messiah. And the first one is that he did not fulfill messianic prophecies, is his claim. And the second reason is that he does not embody the personal qualifications for the Messiah. In other words, a lot of modern Jews are still waiting for the coming prophesied Messiah that was described in the Old Testament, and they do not think that Jesus fit those qualifications. And as I already mentioned, there are some that say this is the uniting factor with all Jews is that we do not think Jesus is The Messiah, if you do receive Jesus as your Messiah, you are no longer theologically with the modern Jewish individual. You know what's interesting about that claim is that thousands of Jews in the first century, the ones that were closest to Jesus, closest to him chronologically in history, actually believed that he was the Messiah. The first disciples were all Jewish men. The Apostle Paul, a highly educated Jewish man, even deeply ingrained in Judaism. And guess who made up and comprised the early church in the book of Acts? It was Jews, coming to understand that this is the Messiah. Now, they didn't quite get it prior to the resurrection, as we have been learning, and even the disciples were very thick-skinned and a little bit dense when Jesus was talking about his own his own death and his own resurrection but after the resurrection thousands upon thousands of Jewish people who held to the Old Testament began flooding into Christianity in droves why because they began to recognize that Jesus was in fact the claimed Messiah he was the prophesied chosen one that he was in fact the one that even though he died, he conquered death, that he lives, and that he is the one that they were waiting for. And in repentance and faith, they embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And we come to a passage of Scripture that gives us many reasons why they embraced Jesus as their Messiah. There were things that they thought that Jesus didn't quite match up, and then after the resurrection, they, they had these Gospels written down, and they were able to go back and read the account of who Jesus was and what he taught and the things that happened. And they heard the testimony of those who had bore witness to the resurrected Christ and they began to receive Jesus as the Lord. And I believe that many of us have a kind of impoverished uh, version of Jesus. We have a Jesus that's kind of cut off from the Old Testament. We, we, we understand Jesus in terms of his He died for our sins, and He he rose from the dead. And if I just believe Him or ask Him into my heart, then I can be, be saved. And we forget all that the Old Testament was doing as it laid the foundation and prophesied who this coming Messiah would be. Our Jesus is too small, and we need the Old Testament to round out our understanding of Him and even paint the picture and put the backlight as it were, to shine upon Christ so we can know who he truly is. So I think our text this morning is going to bring us to a deeper, bigger understanding, a more accurate understanding of the character, the person, the identity of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see a little bit of what he's like. What is the Messiah like? So we're going to, Look at this triumphal entry passage. You're, you're there in Mark 11. And I want to read verses 1 to 11. We're not going to focus as much on verse 11. We'll do that in the weeks to come. But verse, we'll, we'll read it so you can see what's going on. Ah, here we are. You're in your Bible, uh, Mark chapter 11. We're starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away. They found a colt. I do a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing? untying the colt?" the colt. They told him, but Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields, and those who went before, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. When he had looked around at everything, and it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What do you think is going on here? It's a passage that's so common. You've heard before. I'm sure you've heard sermons. Perhaps as a child, you walked down the church aisle with a palm frond on Palm Sunday. You've heard about this event. All four Gospels include it. Why is this so significant? And one of the things you have to always think about, it, when you're reading the Gospels, you understand they're not carbon copies of one another. It's not like one of them wrote their Gospel, gave it to the other guy. He got, made some Copies and they hand it out, and you got marks, you got Luke's, you got Matthew's, you got John's. They're all basically the same thing. No, they're they're all slightly different. They include many of the same events, but not hundred percent act, or not a hundred percent. They are hundred percent accurate, not hundred percent. Wrong word. um Not a hundred percent identical in that they are saying all the exact same things in all the exact same way. It's basically like four different eyewitnesses all giving their account of what they saw, and they're all telling the truth with accuracy, but they're seeing it from different angles. And sometimes you have an author that includes some detail that another author doesn't. Uh, uh, Sometimes one leaves some things out, and other expands more on that particular thing. In the end of the, the Gospel of John, John writes essentially that if you were to take all the things that Jesus said and all the things that Jesus did, the whole world would not be able to contain everything about Jesus. And so what the authors of the New Testament, particularly of these Gospels, had to do is they had to be selective. What were they going to include? And so whenever you're going to read a gospel, one of the questions you're asking yourself is on the principle of selectivity. Why did they select this? Why is this here? Why did Mark want to include this? Now, this is a passage that is included in all the gospels. Matthew includes it. Mark includes it. Luke and John include the triumphal entry indicating that this was a highly significant event in the life of Christ that you did not want to miss out. You needed to understand this. And this, I believe, this portion of Scripture, I believe, is partially why after the resurrection, Jews become Christians like crazy because they're understanding, wow, look at what happened in the triumphal entry. The other thing we're going to want to do is you look at this And I wonder how many of you read this beforehand. I think it's a good practice to do. Read the text of Scripture before you show up to church on Sunday, maybe Saturday night. You get it in your head. You're thinking about things. And and one of the things I wonder if you notice is why is there so much detail about this cult? What's going on with the cult? We're going to talk about that. Uh, Why is this here? What is going on? What is being communicated? It is incredibly important for us to understand the character and identity and personality of Jesus to understand this text. Let's look at it just in more detail. They're coming to Jerusalem. Remember where they had just come from. Who did we talk about last week? The man whose name was... Bartimaeus right Bartimaeus and Bartimaeus remember was on the road next to Jericho and Jesus is there he's marching as it were on his way to Jerusalem he is ready to go suffer and die in the place of his people and on his way he hears the cries for mercy from the blind Bartimaeus son of David have mercy on me and Jesus can't resist stopping he turns to him he he heals the blind man grants him the request that he was asking for and Bartimaeus is following him on the way and then Jesus resumes his, his steps toward the city, the city of Jerusalem. It would have been about 18 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem and it says, he lists a couple geographical features that help us orient ourselves. It says that they came to Bethphage which would have been a smaller village uh, closer to Jerusalem, and Bethany, two little villages, not identical, but next to each other, at the Mount of Olives. Here's what's happening. Just get this in your mind, maybe doodle it in your notes so you can understand, visualize it. They're coming down from the north. And they're coming down, and the road they're on is taking them on the east side of Jerusalem. And as they're kind of starting to the, to go toward Jerusalem now, they're going to have to enter in from the east gate, they come to uh, the Mount of Olives, which wouldn't have been a mountain like this one out here. This would have been a much smaller mountain, uh, more of a hill. And they would be coming along this, and Bethany was kind of at the base of the mountain. You would kind of cross the Mount of Olives. You'd get to Bethphage, a little closer to Jerusalem up here. And then they would drop down the Mount of Olives. Uh, let me actually back up. Once you got to the top of Mount of Olives, there you would see Jerusalem. It would be the the site that all the traveling pilgrims longed to see, the great old city, the promised city of David, and they would come up and they would see the beautiful city. They would cross down the Kidron Valley, uh, which itself has some history in it, and then they would enter in the East Gate, Uh, and they'd enter in Jerusalem from the east. That's kind of what's being described here. Mark is including these geographical details on purpose, and you're going to see why in a second Now, we have to understand some of the timeline, the chronology here. This is around Passover. I've made mention of this before in the last couple weeks that on their journey to Jerusalem, they wouldn't have been traveling alone because there was Passover week just ahead of them. And pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims would have been on that same road coming in from the north to enter Jerusalem for the Passover week. And Bethany and Bethphage were two kind of towns, villages. On the outside of Jerusalem, for those that didn't stay in Jerusalem during the Passover week, you would come in, you'd participate in the festivities during the week, you'd leave the town in the evening and you'd come to Bethany or Bethphage At night, and that's where you would stay. It was often so crowded in Jerusalem, you'd want to stay outside the town. And you'll notice, if you read the Passion Week, this is exactly what Jesus and the disciples do. Uh, At the end of every day, they're going back to Bethany. Well, Bethany is that little village just outside Jerusalem. Bethany was interesting. You've got to know a little bit about Bethany. It's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived, some great close friends of Jesus. It is, in fact, the place where Lazarus was raised from the dead, just prior to what happened, so again, let this filter or, or, or infiltrate your mind, so you're understanding exactly the, the scene here. Lazarus has been raised from the dead in Bethany. He had died. He was in a tomb. Jesus, his friends, come to him. They say he's dead. Jesus, can you do anything? And he he actually speaks to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. He raises this man from the dead. What do you think's happening in Bethany after a dead guy walks out of the tomb? People hear about it. In fact, in the Gospel of John, everyone knows Lazarus just walked out of the grave. And it says that people were starting to believe in Jesus because of that. It also says that how hard-hearted were the Pharisees that when they saw Lazarus up and walking around again, they wanted to kill him, you know, part two, you know, put him to death. I don't know what's going through your mind when you're trying to plot to kill someone who just died and he's now alive, um, but that's what they were planning. Uh, in the meantime, the, the city, the little village of Bethany is rife with excitement. The, the Messiah, this person who's been doing miracles up and down Israel, is now passing our way. He just healed a blind man. He just raised a dead guy. This is the one this is the one. His 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 dealing with Lazarus was so transformative to that little town of Bethany that they actually the the place still exists today. You can go there, um, but it's named different. It's called El Azariah, and what that means is the place of Lazarus. Lazarus, sorry. It's almost as if. The miracle of raising him from the dead was so transformative to that little village and to the people who knew it that the reputation was shifted, that they stopped calling it Bethany, and they just said, hey, that's the place where Lazarus was you know, raised from the dead. Do you want a testimony to the resurrection of Christ? That's, go to Bethany. Go to Lazarus' place. It, the, and so the, the city was transformed. Also, it's helpful to note that during this time... There there existed in, almost in the air, a kind of, uh, what scholars have called a a messianic fever, that everyone's just on the edge of their seat. Prophets have been silent for a few hundred years, that you just, you know, even the, the, the Romans are occupying the land. There's even been some people who have started to call themselves the Messiah, and they, they create these uprisings, and the revolts eventually fail, but there's, this is the, in the air that the Messiah is going to come. He's got to be soon, and then John the Baptist appears 30 years prior to this, and he starts, or not 30, around there, prior to this, and he starts preaching. He's basically got two big messages. He's saying, hey, listen, the kingdom of God is at hand, and do you remember in the beginning of chapter Mark how many people were listening to John the Baptist? This, whole country says the whole country was coming to hear john preach the kingdom's coming everyone's listening and he's saying not only is the kingdom coming but there's one coming after me who's so great i'm not, not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals in other words this now the fever is reaching a fever pitch the guy who is now being recognized as the one with the authority to cast out demons to heal the sick to give sight to the blind the one who is being called the son of David, the one who can raise the dead, he's here and he's in Bethany and he's coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to Jerusalem. Do you know what that would mean for a Jew who's waited 400 years for the prophets to speak, has been waiting for the son of David to establish his throne? It's happening. This would have been a fever pitch of excitement for Israel. And so here they are disciples begin to make that turn. They're not thinking. Again, I've said this before, and it's come up in the text. He keeps telling them, hey, I'm going to go die there. You get that? I'm going to die. And they don't get it. They just don't get it. They've they're got kingdom on the brain. That's all they're thinking of, March into Jerusalem, get on David's throne. I can sit on your left, and uh, he can sit on your right, and, and this is what we're going to do as we get into the kingdom. They don't get his death. But what begins to happen here is we get these little details. Why did he choose these things? Look at this. He gets two of the disciples and says to them, go in the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter there, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. So detail, colt. He's going to be tied to something. No one will have ever sat on this colt. Untie it. Bring to me if anyone says to you. All these details. Here's where the cult's going to be. Here's what he's like. No one sat on him. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to bring him to me. Here's what you're going to say. If someone tries to tell you you can't have the cult, tell them Here, here's what you need to say. And they go and they do it and they find the cult and it's outside the street and they, they untie it and there's people standing there and they tell them what Jesus said. It's, it seems like an inordinate amount of time for such tiny details, doesn't it? You say, what's going on? Why seven verses about this cult? There are many other things that Jesus did, healings and things like that, that are not included in the Gospel of Mark. Why does Mark feel so compelled to contain seven verses about the disciples going and getting a cult? This is actually highly significant to the point that I believe, as I said earlier, that Jews would read this later on and they go, he was the Messiah. He was. Look at, Look at Mark 11. Let me tell you why. Turn back to First Kings. All the way back to First Kings. You got First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings. Maybe you got to peel your Bible pages apart because you haven't read that section in a long time. But at the end of Second Samuel, you got David now in his old age. It says in verse one of First Kings, David was old. And advanced in years. He's, he's the king of Israel, the United Kingdom at this point. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. He's an old man. He's at the end of his life. His kingdom is about to pass from him, okay? Now look down at verse 5. We're just going to have to skip, look at a few key verses to see what's happening here. Verse 5 says, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith. Now Haggith is a one of the many wives of David, it's not a man, it's describing one of David's sons, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Like, Okay, hey, Father David, he's getting old, he's about to die, someone's got to take the throne, I think it should be me. So he declares, I'm going to be king. It says he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And he basically makes this big announcement, I'm the new king, Adonijah, the new king of Israel. I'm going to take David's throne. I'm going to be the one appointed him. And if you skip forward to verse 15, Bathsheba, David's now wife goes to David, the old man. It actually describes that again. Now the king was very old. And basically what happens there is Bathsheba goes to David, who's, who's old and dying, and says, hey, listen, even though you appointed Solomon to be king, your son Adonijah is trying to take the throne. Uh, David, hey, wake up. You got to do something about it. You would, and he had. He had appointed Solomon to be king prior to this event, but it had not been recognized. And so Adonijah's coming and he's, I want to be king. And Bathsheba's going, David, come on, you're about to die. And if you don't say something, if you don't make a declaration, then Solomon's not going to get the throne. Instead, it's going to be passed to your son Adonijah, and he's not the one you wanted to be king. And look at verse 20, skip ahead to that. Bathsheba says, and now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king. After him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. In other words, if Adonijah becomes king and we're still holding on to the claim that Solomon's king, we're going to be the bad guys because Adonijah will have the throne and all the power at that point. David, you better do something. What does he tell them to do? Turn ahead to verse 32. David knows what he needs to do. He needs to make it clear, follow this, he needs to make it clear who the true son of David is. He needs to make it clear who has the right to the throne. Verse 32, King David said, me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, they came before the king. The king said to them, take with you, the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. I don't have time to show all of this. Solomon, here's how I'm going to demonstrate you're the king. You get my mule. What the geography even of Gihon, this is the eastern part of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, for Solomon to have to do this, he would have to enter the east gate, he would have to go up Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, into Jerusalem. Interesting. The way that the true king is recognized is the king will be entering the east gate of Jerusalem on a mule. Interesting. Hmm. This is how the true son of David is. Recognized. And then, as if it's not even clear there, you fast forward to Zechariah. And I'm not going to tell you to find that one because that one's tough to find. But if you want to find it, you could look at Zechariah 9:9, where the prophecy is given, and the prophet is declaring, and I'll read it to you, rejoice, O. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Rejoice. Behold, your king is coming to you. This is prophecy. Hey, Israel, you ought to be rejoicing. He's talking to future Israel. You ought to be rejoicing. Why? Your king, the son of David, the promised Messiah, he's coming. But look how he's coming. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is doing this on purpose. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing when he tells the two disciples to go and get the colt. He is aligning himself with the true son of David, Solomon. He is fulfilling the prophecy that was given to Zechariah. He is the Messiah. He's making it clear that he's the Messiah. And once he gets on that colt and walks into the east gate of Jerusalem, he is making the claim, even though he is not saying a word, he is saying, look who I am, the son of David, the prophesied Messiah, I'm coming with salvation, mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you might think that what's the big deal? Didn't people ride their way into Jerusalem if they've traveled far? You know, did they walk the whole way? Well, it was actually common that people would actually ride to Jerusalem from scattered areas where they were. But it was common for the traveling pilgrims when they're climbing up Mount of Olives, and they're about to see Jerusalem, they'd actually get off their, their, off their donkey or they get off their mule, and they would walk in the final steps into Jerusalem as a way of honoring it, to soak it all in. Jesus does the opposite. I'm going to get on the donkey. As I walk in the east gate, I'm going to make it perfectly clear. And here's our first point that that helps us know Jesus more accurately. It helps us know him more accurately so that we can worship him more fervently, worship him for who he truly is. Point number one, Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. If you want to understand Jesus more clearly and have a fuller picture of him Listen, Church, Read your Old Testament. Dive in into the Old Testament. It provides what you need to know to understand who Christ is, who the Messiah is. If you neglect your Old Testament, you will have an impoverished view of God, of Jesus himself, the gospel, you will then be impoverished as a Christian. Because you will not be operating out of a full and robust understanding of the one whom you are serving. Namely, Jesus. You've got to have your Old Testament. He is the one who is promised. He is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. He is the prophet who is greater than Moses. He is the priest who comes to make the final and complete sacrifice. He is the king who is promised to come and establish an everlasting dominion. He is the deliverer who is the only one who will rescue his people from the bondage of their enemies and the bondage of sin. You don't get the fullness of that if you ignore the Old Testament. And the whole Old Testament is... Pointing us and laying the foundation for us to understand the glory of the Son of David who comes into his own kingdom and establishes it from Jerusalem. We've got to understand this. I wonder, do you read the Old Testament? And do you read it not just for the morality tales as if it's a collection of Aesop's fables? Do you read it with the understanding that this is helping us know God? It's helping us know ourselves, it's helping us anticipate salvation and understand that God will grant salvation, salvation in the Messiah, and thus, and when you get to the New Testament, it'll actually help you understand the, the nature and the character and the identity of this man we call Jesus. Study your Old Testament, church. Study it well. If you want to know Jesus, it might be counterintuitive to say it this way, if you want to know Jesus well, study your Old Testament. Because all of these symbolic things and these prophecies are happening, helping the Jews understand that he was, in fact, their long-awaited Messiah. Here's another point that we're going to see here in this text, that Jesus is the Lord of history this text does put his divine nature on display. It does. And maybe you read it too quickly to notice it, but it does put his divine nature on display. Let's think of him as the Lord of history just for a moment. When is he coming into Jerusalem? He's arriving precisely at the week of the Passover. He's arriving precisely as the pilgrims are entering Jerusalem themselves. And what are these traveling pilgrims going to do? They're going to take a Passover lamb. They're going to slaughter it. They're going to remember God's gracious salvation given to Israel in the Exodus all those years ago. Aren't they? That's going to be happening all around him. And Jesus, that same week as they are making sacrifice to cover themselves with the blood of the lamb so that they can remember God's gracious provision toward them, Jesus himself will lay down his own life to make himself a sacrificial lamb so that his own blood will cover all those who trust him in faith. In other words, he's showing up so that it's crystal clear that he is offering himself as a lamb. He is the Passover lamb, as John says. He is the lamb of God who takes upon himself the sins of the world. The timing is impeccable. Now, what's also fascinating about this is one scholar, a guy by the name of Harold Poner, he wrote a book in the 1970s titled The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And in it, he studies the Old Testament passages and all the various Uh, you know, timelines of Christ and when this would have happened. And there's a lot of different dates in the Bible, and you can navigate them and figure out what what happened and when, and all of this is possible. And there's one particular passage in the Bible, in Daniel 9, that speaks about a, a segment of time from the beginning of the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah to Jerusalem. And Daniel, in this Daniel 9 prophecy, makes this kind of cryptic uh, uh, idea, this cryptic prophecy where he says there will be uh, 77 77s, This uh, a little bit as uh, you first read you go what's happening and then he talks about 62 and then he talks about 7 more and it adds up to 69 7's and the 7's referred to 7 years so you have 69 7's of years lost yet? um which add up to, when you add them all together, 69 times 7, you have 483. And Harold Honer went on to show that from the time that Jerusalem was restored, which is described in Nehemiah 2, you can go look it up, to the time that Jesus appeared here to enter Jerusalem is exactly, guess how many years? 483 years. Now, he goes even further and says that if you work out the years, you turn them into days, you can actually make the case that Jesus is arriving on the exact day, that the Old Testament prophet Daniel predicted. In other words, Jesus is Lord of history. Everything is happening exactly according to his promise and prophecy. Nothing that could ever happen on earth would get in the way of what he's doing. Not a single person who opposes him could get in the way of his plan. No one could upset his timeline. He's going to show up right on time. And I think this should give us a lot of Comfort, church, don't you? How often is God going to break a promise? He will never break a promise. He may come thousands of years past what you expected him, and he will not break his promise. He will hold fast to what he said. He will do it exactly as he said he would do it. How many generations of Jews were waiting for the king to come to Jerusalem? How many generations of Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come? And I wonder how often were the Jews mocked and ridiculed for being the kind of people who were waiting for a Messiah, and then he actually came, and he shows up and he walks in. I just want to put this before our own minds. Christians, you know we're waiting for the Messiah to return again, that he has said he would come back. We have no timeline. We don't have dates. Don't trust anyone who's trying to set dates or tell you when he's going to return. We don't know. But we do know he will return. And how often is the church mocked because we're waiting for a Messiah to return? How often are we ridiculed as people who are strange, off, a little bit weird because we are looking for a home, not here, but a home in heaven, a home where the Messiah is reigning and ruling that he sets up an everlasting kingdom. And friends, if you believe this stuff, you will be a fool and embrace it. We are fools for Christ's sake. He will not break a promise and just as the Jews of this day saw it begin to materialize before their very eyes, listen, it will happen, church. He will come. He will return. The king is coming back. And he will come back not as a humble king mounted on a donkey. The passages that describe his return as he comes like a conquering king to establish his kingdom, to slaughter his enemies, to establish the rule that lasts forever. And all those in repentance and faith who are trusting in him will receive the kingdom. And all those who have denied and rejected him and held on to their sin will be cast out. He's the Lord of history. He will return. But I also want you to see something else. He's the Lord of the details. Isn't he? He's a long-awaited Messiah that the Jews have been hoping for, and he's the Lord of history that controls all of human history because he's over it, because he's God, because he's divine. But he's paying attention to donkeys and where they're tied up and what to say in certain situations and how to deal with that. I find this fascinating. He knows exactly what to do. In fact, it, as I was just studying this, how many little things could have gone wrong to just totally ruin this plan? It's like the donkey's not where he thought it was, or it's like tied, but it's too much of a knot that it can't get off in time. I mean, or, or they ask for it, and then the people say, oh, no, you can't have this donkey. This is ours. Or, or they find the donkey, and the, the people who own it are willing to, to give it to them, but, but then they find out, oh, somebody already wrote on this. This is not the donkey that we're supposed to use. You know, somehow, I, I mean, there's a, there's a possibility that Jesus at some point arranged all this. And some scholars hold that. I actually think that this is evidence of his omniscience, that he has foreordained this, that he has planned this, that he knows exactly what's happening, just as he has evidenced his power and omniscience before, just as he has been describing the exact way he will die. Here he demonstrates his omniscience by knowing exactly where the cult will be, exactly what to say to the people, exactly what kind of cult it is. It's never been written. written And he will tell them exactly what to do and what to say. And they come back and none of his details are upset because he's the Lord of every detail too. He's sovereign. Now what I find particularly encouraging in this section is what John makes clear even more than Mark does is that the disciples were not getting what was happening. The symbolism of the cult that I've just described to you, you know, found in First Kings one and found in Zechariah nine nine. I don't think the disciples got this. John makes it clear that they were just as confused as the rest of us would have been. Yeah, you know, cult? Why? Did, why? Huh? Usually people walk into Jerusalem. You want to get this donkey? What's going on? Okay, he told us to go get a donkey, and there's one over here. Is this the one that's never been ridden? Okay, they're not quite sure what they're doing. They go do it because they're obedient and they're going to listen to their their rabbi, and they go get that donkey. Uh, here's what I, I find fascinating, and encouraging, they, these two men, these two disciples, not, we don't get their names here, are part of one of the most significant events in redemptive history. See this? They are a part of the fulfillment of the son of David, who has long been prophesied entering into the holy city. They're the ones that went and got the cult. They're the ones that made it an exact fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And here's the thing. They had no idea that's what they were doing. They were just listening to their master. How often do we think that the small acts of obedience that we're committing to are unnoticed by God and insignificant? We're doing something because it's the right thing to do. No one seems to notice. It doesn't seem to be a big deal. We're just doing the right thing because it's the right thing. Who knows how God is using these small acts of faithfulness as a part of his grand redemptive plan to bring glory to himself through the redemption of his people. The disciples had no idea how integral their part was in this grand scheme. And how often are you doing little things of obedience and faithfulness? Listen, you don't know how God is using you. You don't have the great picture that God has. Your call is like these disciples is to be obedient, to be faithful, to do the little things Even if you'll never do anything big and great and glorious for God in your life, you have no idea of how you might be used in all the little things to make the big things happen. Reminds me of the man who shared the gospel with D.L. Moody. Trembling, fearful, nervous, could hardly work up the courage to go talk to him as he worked, you know, in the shoe shop. D.L. Moody was in the back, a pagan and the, the man walked in and shared the gospel with him and trembling, barely could get the words out and thought that he was doing nothing, but he knew that he needed to be obedient, so he shared the gospel with him and walked out of that encounter kicking himself, feeling like a fool for stumbling over his words and being so timid and being so bashful about it, and he wished he could be a better evangelist and more bold and more faithful and more clear, and D.L. Moody starts showing up to church, gets converted, starts evangelistic outreach ministries, thousands upon thousands are getting saved, and that man, no one knows his name, he doesn't get recognized, he was faithful. How often are we like these disciples doing the things we know are right, not understanding how much a part of God's big redemptive plan our obedience is? Church, be faithful in the little things. Do the right things. Honor the Lord with your simple, faithful, consistent acts of obedience and let him determine how he uses you. And don't evaluate your ministry by how much big things you see happening around you. Let the Lord evaluate your ministry on the last day. Aim for faithfulness. Aim to be found obedient to him and him alone and his approval. And let him determine the breadth or the impact or the fruitfulness of your influence. He's the Lord of the details. Be faithful. As we kind of come to the end of the section, look at verses 9 and 10. Actually, we'll go before that. We'll look at verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it. This was kind of a makeshift saddle in the moment. Again, he didn't have a saddle, the the colt, because it had never been ridden on. And he gets on it. Again, this is an act. <laughs> this is an act that would have, if the Romans understood it, they would have wanted to smush him out right there because it's an act of claiming authority as king. He sits on it. And verse 8, many spread their cloaks, so the crowds are starting to go wild. They they are taking their cloaks off of their own. Backs. They're throwing them into the dusty road. They're throwing them onto the ground. Others are grabbing leafy branches. Uh, John describes this as their palm branches, the palm fronds, which was actually a symbolic gesture. The palm fronds were often understood to be symbols of kingship, symbols of victory. This is almost as if these people who are waving these things around and throwing them on the ground are claiming the king has come and he is going to be victorious over the Romans. It's as if they want him right this moment to go in and overthrow Rome. Verse 9, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, the word Hosanna means God save us now. God save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're identifying him as the one who comes. Uh, This is from Psalm 118. It came to be understood as a messianic text, the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. Blessed, verse 10, is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He's coming to set up his kingdom. He's coming now. He's the offspring of our father David, and he will establish that kingdom we've been longing for. The crowds were in a frenzy. They were feverish with their excitement, claiming that he's here, he's here, he's here. Here comes the kingdom. God save us! God save us! Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! And then, look at verse eleven, he entered Jerusalem, and the crowds are like nowhere to be found anymore. Where'd they go? he went to the temple and it seems to be that he's alone here as he looked around at it this is the look of valuation king has come to his city and he's walked into the place of worship where he is to be worshipped he's taken it all in it's already late then he goes back to Bethany (laughs) anticlimactic right I mean, the people who are there shouting all these things, I mean, where did they go? What's going on here? It's fascinating. And you have to ask yourself, is that the true embrace of the true king? I mean, did they really get it? Did they really embrace him as their Lord? Did they really embrace all of who the Messiah was and the answer you might be anticipating is no. They did not quite get it, did they? They were very excited about the political advantages that their Messiah would bring them, overthrowing the oppression of Rome. But they actually, though they were enthusiastic, and though there's much excitement, you know what was not there? repentance. What did Jesus say when he began his ministry? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. The poor in spirit are the ones who enter my kingdom, Jesus says. The meek the lowly, the ones who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, those who are the ones who get in, it seems as if the crowds were very excited about Jesus to some degree, but they were not poor in spirit. They were not asking for forgiveness. Listen, they didn't want a savior. They wanted a political powerhouse. They didn't want their sins forgiven. They didn't want their guilt removed. They weren't like Bartimaeus begging for mercy. They were hoping for something far more powerful And friends, I wonder how many of us have Jesuses that we've made in our mind that we expect him to do things in our lives that he has never promised to do. We think Jesus has come to build our kingdom. We think Jesus is obligated to make our lives better, to build our kingdoms up, to establish us in comfort and peace and harmony. Just like these people, they are not as concerned about Jesus. If you notice, they're actually more concerned about that kingdom that they want And there are many of us who love Jesus because we think that he will build our kingdom. And we've mistaken who Jesus actually is. He's building his kingdom. He hasn't come to make our lives cushy and cozy and comfortable in this life. He has come to establish a kingdom that lasts forever. The way into the kingdom is repentance before the king. And trust in him. Turn over to Luke 19, real quick. Got Matthew, Mark, and then turn over to Luke and go to Luke 19. There's an event that happens as he crests the hill. Remember, he's coming in. And this is after the cries of Hosanna, before the entrance into the temple. He's drawing near the city in Luke 19. Verse 41, he drew near and he saw the city and he wept over it. I wish I could have just been a rock on that hill. See that event. That as he comes and he sees the holy city, the ancient city, the city that he will rule from one day, he begins to weep. He begins to weep over the lostness of the people. Yeah, there was excitement and enthusiasm. Yes, there was all kinds of hopes and dreams that these people had that they would establish this political kingdom, and they were lost, and they had no idea they were lost. And it so touches the heart of our Savior that he begins to weep. The tears begin to flow from the eyes of the God-man. And he cries out, he says, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade. He's talking about what will happen in 70 AD. The Romans will actually overthrow and destroy Jerusalem. The enemies will set up a barricade and surround you and Hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because, why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know who I truly was. You did not know what kind of season this was for you. This was the season of repentance. This was the season of confession. This could have been the season to receive the king, and you missed it because you were looking to build a kingdom void of forgiveness, void of a savior. You didn't want to deal with your sin. You didn't want any of that. You wanted power. And now your house is left to you desolate, and you will experience the full blunt of the curse of God as God allows the Romans to utterly destroy the capital city of Israel. Jesus will not establish his kingdom, though he is the true king. Jesus is, in fact, the son of David, and he will set up a Davidic kingdom, but he will not do it here. He will not do it here. He will lay his life down here. This is where I want to end. Jesus, in this text, also shows us, reveals to us, he is our perfect example. You know, it's tempting to just look at this passage and say, well, this is about his entrance into Jerusalem, and of course it is. But you also got to understand, whenever you're reading about Jesus, we ought to pause and not just try to get the scene, but we also got to see the heart of Christ. Because 1 Peter 2 says that he is an example for us, and we should follow in his footsteps. So as we're looking at this, we go, here's our example. And I want to just list three things very briefly as we close. Consider this about Jesus. Consider, first of all, how brave he is. He knows that to sit on the colt is an act of defiance against the most powerful empire in the world, the Roman Empire. And in bravery, he knows he must do it anyway. He sits on the colt. He begins to bravely set into motion the very events that will lead to his torture. I'm going in. He's an example for us, and I want us to consider how so often we are not like Jesus. Are you ever cowardly? Do you ever respond to costly obedience with cowardice? Instead of bravery like our Lord? Aren't you so glad Jesus was brave? Aren't you so glad that he was determined to get on that cult and to start walking in to the heart of the enemy where the people would kill him? And doesn't that make you want to be like him? Be more brave, more bold. Be okay with the fact that our friends might not like us anymore if we tell them the truth about their sin and point them to the Savior. Are you okay with sharing the gospel and being evangelistic even though it might cost you something? Jesus was. He was so brave. He was so courageous. And he's acting in love to do this thing that he's on the mission to do from his Father. Secondly also, think of how obedient he is. He has submitted himself to the Father's will. He's willing to obey even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And later he'll get to the Garden of Gethsemane and he will be in tears as he prays to his father, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. And listen, church, this is the model you too are called to follow. Obedience, even if it's painful, obedience to the point of death. Be obedient if it costs you to submit yourself to the Father and say, not my will, Lord, yours be done. I will obey you no matter the cost. I will commit to obedience no matter how easy or how difficult it is. I want to live for you, Father. He is obedient at great cost to himself. What a Savior he is. Just let me encourage you. If you don't know how to be obedient, start reading your Bible Ask yourself what God is like and what he demands of us. Lastly, think of how loving he is. He weeps when sinners reject him. And then he marches in to die on their behalf. What love? Do you love people who hate you? Or is your love only toward those who are like you? Who offer you something? See, this is the love of Christ that we should marvel at and worship him for, and then aim to cultivate in our own lives. Jesus is moving toward the people who hate them, who hate him. And he will die on the cross and he will say, Father, forgive them. What love that Christ has for sinners, right? That he would lay his life down. For them, He does not wait for us to love Him first. No, He loves us first. We can only love Him because He loves us first. And this is the heart of the gospel that He has come in love to lay His life down, to take the punishment we deserve, and then to rise from the dead on the third day and to offer free forgiveness of sins and salvation to everyone who trusts in Him. Have you trusted in Him? Do you this morning trust in the love that Christ has for sinners? And would you trust him with your whole life and commit to following him? It is worth it. His love is that great. And listen, there are over 100 people here who gather every Sunday to declare it is worth it to trust in Jesus. It is worth it to know his love and that he, in fact, is reliable and his love is strong. Just look at him going into the place where he will be slaughtered out of love. What a Savior. And church, would you imitate that love? Do your neighbors know that you love them? If they were to be pulled and asked some sort of question, would they know those people love me? They actually care about me. They're actually interested in me. I'm talking about your literal neighbors. Wouldn't that be a practical way to start imitating the love of Christ here? To love people who don't necessarily deserve it or haven't done anything to earn it, but God has put around us. What would it look like for us to imitate Christ and to move forward, even when it might cost us something, to love people? Oh, yes, we should love one another. I pray that that grows more and more. This text shows Jesus' demonstration of love to people who do not love him back. What a Savior. He is the long-awaited Messiah. Let's get that clear in our minds. He is the Lord of all history and of all details. He is God incarnate who bravely and obediently and lovingly laid down His life for those who could never save themselves. He took it up again, and He lives forever. Church, we worship Him. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord, for the small Jesuses we have in our minds. Forgive us, Lord, for the incomplete ways we've thought of him. Forgive us, Father, for entertaining untrue thoughts of you. Forgive us for the ways we've forgotten, how brave and courageous and obedient and loving Christ is. Lord, may we be reminded to trust Him afresh this morning. He is so trustworthy. He is so loving and so powerful. We would be fools not to entrust our entire life to Him. Pray that if there's one here who has not trusted fully in Jesus and repentance and faith, that they would right now respond in faith, I pray that those of us who have would respond with fresh confidence in his love for us, but also with humble zeal to cultivate this attitude in our own lives. Make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.